Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talk on the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're looking at John chapter 13, verses 1 to 30 of Lesson 17. So, have you ever been a part of a great team, whether it's a sports team or maybe a work team? If you have, then you know what having great people on your team can do when you want to accomplish something, or how they might make even work not even seem like work. How collaboration with a great team is free and easy, and conversations take place that are fun and enjoyable, and everybody is on the same page about the mission and purpose, and they work together. Everybody's pitching in. And you get an understanding of this if you've been on really bad teams as well. (laughs) which I have. And, you know, Jesus is undertaking that with us in the kingdom of God. He's showing us that we need to be trained to be on his team, to be great team players on his team. And that training is called sanctification. And he demonstrates that with what appeared at first to be very shocking act as described in this chapter. And so we're going to get to more of that in a moment. I just want to share with you that this Uh, lesson from John is um, covering the doctrine of sanctification. We are studying the attribute of God's omniscience, that God knows everything and God will undertake to take us where we need to go. The big idea is uh, the demonstration of Jesus' selfless servanthood, selfless stewardship of our lives. And the aim of this study is that God is glorified through his servant's sacrificial love for others. The two divisions that we have are God's glorious love revealed, that's verse 1 through 17, and God's glorious love rejected, that's verse 18 to 30. And we'll go through these again, but the first principle just to keep in mind is Jesus' sacrificial love reveals God's glory to the world. And glory again means to reveal the true nature of God, to reveal to us the nature and the uh, magnificence and majesty of God's attribute that we had not fully understood. Or we may be getting it for the first time. God's glory is revealed to the world through his son, our Lord Jesus. And the second principle is rejecting God's glorious love leads to darkness. Leads to darkness. So what is the most difficult part of creating a nation or a kingdom? You know, when I was younger, because I loved architecture and I still do. And I I have a growing appreciation for urban planning and design. I always thought maybe the biggest difficulty of establishing a city or a nation would be the buildings, the public works, the roads, the bridges, the infrastructure. But, you know, over the last few years, as we as we have all been under lockdown and gone through a lot of societal changes due to the pandemic um, and as uh, there has become more lawlessness and people going out of control at so many different levels in our society, I've come to see that the most difficult and the most difficult. Perhaps on the other end of that also is the most radiant part of a kingdom or nation is its people. You know, I look at places where countries boast about their people and how educated and hardworking they are and how that all contributes to level of happiness and fulfillment in the nation. And then I I look at other nations where there's a a great deal of um, malaise and standstill. I mean, just people are not thriving or flourishing. And the hardest part about building a nation is this aspect of uh, getting people to think beyond themselves to a higher purpose, right? And, uh, and that takes some sort of membership training or the citizenship education of its people and has to be done right to build their character, to build their mindset 
around who they are and what they are um, supposed to do in collaboration and cooperation with each other as they live together, uh, pursuing a grander vision of, uh, for their nation. So Jesus does this by completely revamping and remaking who we are, giving us his life. The kingdom of God is only possible because of the life of its founder, who makes it possible within our spirits. He's the one that gives us life. And then he also, he's the one that's remaking us after his, his own character, his own heart. His kingdom is great because he is great. And Jesus told us that he's building his kingdom on the rock, the firm foundation of himself, and that the gates of hell, the spiritual bondage and forces of destruction and every lie and deception, every ill intent will not prevail against it. He has said this. And this process of people, this people-making effort that he is doing, it, to make all of us into the likeness of Jesus, again, is called sanctification. You know, sanctification sounds like a big word, but basically it means that he's making us into saints. And, you know, you may think, oh, I'm not a saint. Uh, that's a big word for me. Uh, that may sound like a tall order, but if you're a believer, I used to remember my pastor used to say, you all are saints. All of you in the congregation who believes in Jesus and calls him your Lord, you are a saint. You're being you're a saint because, uh, not because institutions somehow ordain you to be a saint. No, you are a saint because he has sanctified you. He has sanctified you, which means he has set you apart so that you could be dedicated. He has set you apart so that you could be dedicated to God's personal and eternal purposes for his special use in the kingdom of God, in the domain of the king. So Mark 9, 1, uh, it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so he's speaking of the people of God, not buildings, not infrastructure, not any of those things. The people of God are, is the kingdom of God. And he says, Some of you will not taste death till you see this happen coming in power. In Luke 4, 43, uh, and he said to the disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he's talking about this fantastic momentum of the growth of the kingdom of God, the body of Christ in the church. So one of the ways we lived into, live into the sanctified life is by being a people who learn how to wash others' feet. <laughs> so this is... Uh, a point of some confusion uh, because people are thinking, you know, why don't churches wash each other's feet? And and it's hard to do it. And there's some complaint, you know, how, how can I get my brother to sit down so I can take off his socks and start to wipe his feet down? <laughs> this is a difficult thing. So this is a, don't think about it in those terms. And I'm going to speak more about this. You know, this washing others' feet is a major picture of God's grace demonstrated by Jesus' love and care and concern for his disciples. So imagine touching the most embarrassing part of our body that we, you know, wouldn't normally <laughs> just let someone come and start washing for us. You know, feet sometimes are not the prettiest part of our bodies. I, I'd say I've seen some really bad feet uh, and they're smelly and dirty and they're part of someone such that no one would want to wash it or even look at your feet except the lowliest servants who have no choice at this time in this culture. Uh, and, you know, people are wearing sandals and they're tracking mud and mud mixed with sweat is not a good combination. So you have these uh, 
unfortunate job of some of these servants waiting at the entrance who are taking water out of these huge earthenware jars to uh, wash people's feet as they came in. Well, Jesus here shows us the way of grace in the body of Christ. He's called us to wash each other's feet. Why aren't we doing more of this in the church? You might be asking, are you kidding me? I can't go washing people's feet. Uh, it's so inappropriate. But did you know that you can wash people's feet without ever touching their feet at all? You don't have to get someone to take a seat and take off their shoes and socks to be washing their feet. The way of Jesus is when we bring His shalom, His grace, His love by providing strength to a brother or sister who is struggling in a position of jeopardy and trial or lonely or discouraged. When you do that, you're touching and washing their feet. It is covering their shame. When you go out and cover someone's shame, when you notice that they're in a vulnerable position, or you lend assistance when no one else will, it is reminding them of our eternal hope of Jesus. Washing feet is also involved in cooking and soup kitchens, visiting the uh, those in the hospital or in prison, mourning with them in their sadness, encouraging them to a pure, encouraging others to a pure life. You know, God does say, blessed are the pure in spirit, in heart, for they will see God. Helping people to get to a position of purity, away from the sensuality, lust, and every craven addiction that puts garbage in their hearts and minds so that they can't even hold the pure thoughts of God. And God just wouldn't want to even put good thoughts there because it doesn't have any room and there's no room in there for holding his thoughts. So Jesus teaches us that the world will thereby know us by our love and he demonstrates how to go about loving one another. And our love is God's kind of love. It's not the human Valentine's Day love. It is, it's not symbolized adequately by the romance love of the heart. You know, I always wondered why there was a crack in the heart. Sometimes I get these Valentine's, there'd be this huge kind of crack and or there'd be an arrow striking through it. And much later I realized the human heart and human concept of love is a very fragile thing. And we fall into love as quickly as we fall out of love. I don't know if you've ever kind of had an infatuation or fell in love as a young person, but it does not last. And the human heart, as you probably know if you're old enough, um, <laughs> I'm old enough to know, the human heart is not reliable. It's not loyal. And it, it and the human heart is turbulent. It's, it's oftentimes cares nothing of anyone else except itself. And, and I know, you know, people come falling in love and telling me that they can't, my students uh, in particular, they'll tell me in private counseling, oh, I, professor, I can't live without that person. If I don't see that person every day, I don't think I'm going to make it. And then a year later, they'll have some disagreement that they can't get over. And they'll come back and tell me, I can't stand that person. I don't know what came over me. I don't know what came over me to even think that that person was uh, who I couldn't live without. And I've seen a lot of this, whether they're young people or older people, we are fickle. Our hearts are uh, very, very unreliable. And that's why God had to create a new symbol for love in the language of God. And that new symbol takes the shape of a cross. And he showed us a new language that the world was entirely unfamiliar with. And he started with drawing us to this table, this Eucharist where he gives of himself and his body is presented there in the form of the blood and the blood in the form of the wine, which represents our atonement that makes us right before God so that we could have a relationship with God again. So Jesus teaches us that we, the world will know us by his love.
demonstrate it within ourselves to each other. So God restores us in critical ways we cannot restore ourselves. He covers us in ways we cannot cover ourselves. He cleanses us in ways we cannot cleanse ourselves. And he in Christ gives us the ministry by Christ's power and commission to restore, cover, and cleanse throughout the world in our mission and our calling. So we see the cover of God, you know, uh, in Adam and Eve, uh, when expelled from the garden of God, God made for them clothes made out of animal skins, if you remember Genesis 3, which pointed to the sacrifice of God's lamb. And then later on, you have this peculiar story of uh, Ham, uh, the, young, the son of uh, Noah, after they got off the ark. And he's failing to cover um, his uh, father who's lying there naked because he's, he's gotten inebriated and a, a point of vulnerability, right, in the family. When someone in the family is in a position of vulnerability, do you leave them there naked and uh, to, to be this exhibition of shame? Or do you go there and cover him? And that's why he was, those two sons, Shem and Japheth, were blessed. Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what God has us to do. To cover the shame of those who don't know how to cover, cover themselves. A hurt and a harm arises when we are not in the business of God to cover and cleanse. Jesus tells us that his command to us is that we love one another. And they will know us by our love. Today, we are reminded of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. The altar of God has now become the table of God, where we partake in the person of God in receiving into ourselves the life of God so that we might live Christ in the world. So sanctification is a lifelong process. It's, it's an ed education, um, and God doesn't take shortcuts. I always tell my students, God never takes shortcuts as much as we love shortcuts and cliff notes and you know, cheating our way through. Um, as precious as the needful work of sanctification is, we cannot take shortcuts into it. We have to work at it. And so sanctification is a lifelong process of spiritual growth and refinement where at times we need to stand still and reflect in conversation with the Holy Spirit and with one another. And we need to first, through Christ, be saved and learn to think and live like Jesus. So let's, that has to be clear. Sanctification not, is not the same thing as salvation. First, we need to be made right with God by receiving Christ as our Lord, whereby we can be justified. So these all these Cation words, don't get too confused by them, but in order to be um, on a process of sanctification, we need to be justified before God through Jesus. And then sanctification is the process where the Holy Spirit leads God's justified children who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit as they grow into God's, uh, being God's people into the mind of Christ, prepared for every good work for his glory. So the practical sanctification shapes us, right? It's shaping us and molding us. And, we, you know, we don't always get things perfect or straight, but it is an important process. And I always encourage people, take notes. There is a book uh, that I picked up while I was um, going through some research. Uh, the, it's called The Notebook of Geniuses. I don't know if you can find it here in the U.S., but it chronicles how important it is to journal your progress. Because if you're not thinking and journaling, uh, it's very likely that you're not mindful or attentive to the growth that you're, you're making. Uh, you, you just have to keep track of your journey. If you're not keeping track, you don't know where you started and what, what path you've taken. But in order to appreciate the journey. You need to be chronicling it. And some of the most brilliant people in history uh, are chronicled in this book that I was reading called The, the uh, 
notebook of geniuses and it just had all these pictures of notebooks found from uh, Einstein's uh, library or Leonardo da Vinci or Copernicus or other inventors Tesla you know these people kept really great notes now they all took notes in their own way but they were thinking into their mindful process and that's what we need to do in our sanctification too and while we're doing that we can bounce off our ideas and rejoice with each other. Because, you know, when sh knife sharpens uh, or iron sharpens iron, um, you're not going to get very far if you're sharpening against someone who's not very thoughtful, right? Uh, someone else who's sharp is also going to make you sharp. And and so it's a two twofold process in which you're sharpening them and they're sharpening you. And it's iterative, right? It's going back and forth. So I hope you find some great collaborators in great deepening discussion. Uh, that's what BSF is for, in fact, to... Um, facilitate this idea of iron sharpening iron. Now, I, I don't know if you do this, but I, I keep my notebooks now online. It's all on Google Docs. It automatically stores all my thoughts. I just type things in. As soon as I get up out of bed, Lord's already speaking to me about uh, uh, so many rich thoughts. I, I just praise the Lord for my worship time in the morning. And then uh, during the day, if I have something to jot down, I, I just jot things down and send an email to myself. And at the end of the day, I archive that into a separate folder in my Gmail account. So there are ways to use technology for enhancing and facilitating your spiritual growth. I, I just want to encourage all of you to take your learning in the Holy Spirit very seriously. And to do that, we need good tools because we're not computers, folks. We need help <laughs> to keep track of this wonderful adventure, reflecting on, on the things that the Holy Spirit cares about and, and mobilizing the church. So I trust the Holy Spirit's power to enact true growth and change in my life. And I'm able to experience greater satisfaction, joy, and peace as I grow closer to who Jesus is. Sanctification can have at times uh, painful. It can be painful. It's always necessary, though. The Lord corrects those he loves. Therefore, we should welcome his loving sanctification and his correction in our lives. It often involves pruning, too. And it creates great fruitfulness, though. What unfruitful thoughts or actions is the Holy Spirit calling you to surrender and, and surrender to his pruning or submit to his will? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to repent of? You know, our sanctification is the work of God for the glory of God. And we can never take credit for our justification or our sanctification. Both are enabled and empowered by him. So we have to enter into these pro uh, th this process prayerfully and honestly and transparently, asking God, please come in, Lord. You know, I don't like the phrase uh, for the Holy Spirit to show up. He doesn't show up. He's always here. If there's any kind of showing up that needs to be done, we need to show up. We need to be present. We need to be mindful and attentive. So we have to be careful of how we um, verbalize what, what's ac actually happening here. The Holy Spirit's always with us and uh, waiting. He's actually waiting for us to pay attention. Uh, it is in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that makes the believer's sanctification possible. So how could you focus more and take a more serious um, approach to sanctification as an intentional part of your prayer life? So let's go into the questions here. What does this passage here in John uh, chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 uh, say about Jesus and what he knew at this moment so it was the Passover feast and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father and having loved his own who were in the world it says he now showed them the full extent of his love and it's just going to continue to show and show and show and interestingly we're only roughly halfway through a little more than halfway through the book of John but the remaining parts are now Jesus giving us courage telling us to be confident, showing love for each other, to be one and unified. 
And then the rest of it is about Christ going to the cross and then his resurrection and his living for us, right? And so describe Jesus' love for his own. Well, it says here that he loved them to the end. And even when people pull back, Jesus pulls in. Somebody asks, well, you know, why is Jesus uh, still allowing Judas to be here? Here, Judas eventually uh, betrays him. Uh, and I, I, the point to remember is that even when people pull back, Jesus doesn't. The nature of his grace is so patient and faithful. Jesus always offers an open door. If you read the chronology of the evening, Judas not only was there for the foot washing, but also for the Eucharist of the Lord's table. That's chapter 13, verse 26. These sacraments are important to us as believers, but remember that they do not confer or give us our salvation. Judas ate at the table, at the communion table, and his feet was also washed. But in the dark, deep dark of night, the darkness of his spirit did not allow Jesus in. But Judas allowed Satan in to undertake works in line with the evil one. So what can we learn from this? We can be seemingly very religious, right? And we've seen this even in the world that we live in uh, way too often. People who live religiously and do good things in other people's lives, we might participate in religious rites and practices, but if we do not allow Jesus into our hearts, the outcome will be diametrically different and we are only one step away from becoming Judas's. A person can live actually in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom while doing all these nice things. And it's a sobering reminder that the truth really matters in our commitment, in our heart and our minds. So Jesus took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist, the attire of a servant who was about to do very messy and laborious work, right? This is dirty water getting everywhere. And, you know, he's, he's about to touch... Uh, just a messy part of our bodies, uh, especially for that time. Foot washing would have astonished them. This was a highly unusual and highly shocking act for their Lord and their master and their teacher to be doing. Uh, it would be, you know, in many other cultures too. Uh, imagine Korea or Japan, a teacher or a politician or the president of the country coming down and washing the feet of a homeless man. I mean, it's just, it would have caused a great uproar among his disciples because they did not understand his love. And that brings us to the first principle. Principle one is Jesus' sacrificial love reveals God's glory to the world. It's countercultural. His sense of all things, you know, has to be redefined for us because we are so embedded in the world's way of thinking. It's shocking to us. But Jesus teaches us what true love is. And he shows us in this act. So what's, at part B asks, what stands out to you most vividly about the way Jesus displayed his love to the disciples? So in the previous lesson, we saw Mary washing Jesus' feet with perfume so that his, he, it was a sweet-smelling Savior to the Lord, right? I talked about that last week. And that was an extravagant act of sacrifice. It is an example of uh, telling us that those serving with the spirit and heart of Jesus, we don't sit around counting our nickels and dimes and keeping track of things, keeping them recorded Oh, I gave John this much money and I gave this person that thing. And, you know, keeping a ledger of where we've given our love. Jesus never keeps track of his outpouring of love into our lives. It's overflowing and abundant. It is meant to show us here that Jesus lavishes his love. Even on someone like Judas, who so desperately needs it, right? But it's Judas's decision whether or not he's going to receive it or deny it. Take note here that Jesus did not seek in advance to separate or remove Judas from the inner 12 disciples. He let him stay. 
and then he let him go when he needed to go. Here, Jesus washed his disciples' feet with water, and they had already presumably entered the house, and they're having their evening meal and are being served. But here he derobed and cleansed his disciples' feet, showing them the full extent of his love. And as I was mentioning in the previous talk, the cleansing of human feet is a symbol of cleansing, purifying our life purpose and our life direction. Why? Well, feet takes us places. We use feet to take us places. So when we're washing the feet, when he is washing our feet, it symbolizes a renewal of our life purposes into his hands. Titus 3.5 tells us how this works. He says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by the righteous de deeds that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of new birth or regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. And it encapsulates everything that He's doing here. A servant's heart, you know, is the low, lowest you can get. Back in New Testament times, they had something called a mikvah. It was a cleansing tub, uh, the cleansing and washing of people before they went into the worship um, uh, temple. So this was also sometimes where people did a baptismal washing but now Jesus who undertakes the cleansing for everyone, he cleans them to symbolize that through our salvation, we are also living into a sanctified life of service. We wash other people's feet. He called us to do this by sharing his love, transmitting what we have received to the needs that other people have uh, by the power of his salvation. And this kind of um, practices helps us reflect on the life and heart of Jesus. And it can be taken in two different ways. It can be taken as a profoundly powerful touching and shaking of us at the core of our paradigms, right? Of what a great king and great leader should be like. Because uh, Jesus, um, he, he actually broke all those rules. And he showed us a kind of kingship that we have never seen, but we needed to see. He was the truest king that the world had ever seen. But for someone like Judas, this kind of act is ridiculously inappropriate, confusing, and downright stupid. Uh, for Judas, who's looking for a political messiah, a political messiah who is brawny and, and wielding a sword and forcefully making his way to take over things, um, this doesn't make any sense. For Judas, this self-abasing, humiliating, uh, this uh, way of self-abasing, it, it goes against the great movement to liberate the Jews from the Roman Empire. I mean, it's just, it, it goes against human intuition about how the world works through fighting and warring and conquering and overcoming. And Jesus does this in the spirit. But for us, he shows us a better way. Jesus, uh, so 6a, Jesus told Peter, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. What did he mean by this? So it's a baptism of purpose, as I mentioned. When our bodies have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we are clean. And the foot washing reminds us that our walk henceforth in life is about cleansing and covering and working into the kingdom purposes of his son. Even as the tumult and difficulties of coming, uh, of the coming persecution and life cares threaten to overtake them. So why is Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet so surprising? And that's question seven, which has us look at Philippians 2, 1 through 10. Where in 6 through 8, it says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So question 8a, what do you learn about humility and service in these passages? Unlike the people uh, seeking to occupy important positions of leadership in the world, uh, we are, we're entering into servant positions of the kingdom of God by our calling. We enter into the leadership stewardship positions not by assessing our experience or resume or competence or our grades or our pedigree, what school we graduated from, but it's the reverse. We rely entirely on God and allow God to work through us. God equips once we obey. God fortifies once we obey and make ourselves available. And when we allow faith in cooperation with obedience to guide us, then great things happen. We don't look to our qualifications. We only look to Jesus to enable and to activate us where we need to go. And he shows us the way, each step of the way. So right before Jesus distributed his own body to them, many of us forget the Lord's Supper practice and its highly symbolic meaning of Jesus' sacrifice for us. You know, we have this, um, over COVID, this little supper uh, tablet things, they're packaged, little wafers and juice packets that um, everybody got individually so that they can have their own uh, Lord's Supper uh, to go. <laughs> but the Lord, the real Lord's Supper actually took place with everybody distributing and eating out of the same loaf. There was this big loaf that was passed around. And when it came to you, you had to literally tear away. You had to like rip it away from the main loaf and break the bread. Can you imagine that? Taking a, a big loaf and breaking the bread and ripping it. That is what Jesus did. That's what happened to his body offered for us. The breaking of his body, the bread of life which came for heaven, was broken for us in order that we might receive his life. And we are also called now to be offering our lives as a living sacrifice for him, broken, and which means we have to give up our pride. We give up all this nonsense about, you know, someone offending us or how we're going to look in front of people. We give up our lives and we die to ourselves and we live to him. When we follow his example, God works through us when we learn to die to ourselves. And when we are ready to take up our cross in his name, we are able to live powerfully into his name as he had promised for us to, that he's going to be living through us into the reality uh, of all that he has promised for us. And, and the eruption of joy happens in that Christian life. It's happened to me. I, I wouldn't just talk about these things theoretically. I mean, just I would not be where I am if I did not ex experience this very thing myself. Dying to myself, allows me to live far above and beyond the little kind of, I'm an introvert, by the way, and I could never do what I'm doing now if it wasn't uh, the, the power of the grace of God working through me when I die to myself. I can't speak in front of people. I'm still having difficulty just even speaking into this mic, but God redeems us to do his work. And then he grows us too, and I'm amazed by it. We are all going through sanctification. So the foot washing is only mentioned in John here. Um, it is a part of the theme that John wants to relate to us of Jesus as the suffering servant who commands us and he shows us as the king and as, as the one who leads us, he does the very things that he's calling us to do, which are all part of his new commandment to love one another. The foot washing is a great picture of what he wanted to leave stamped in our minds of loving one another and it's intensified in this act. Going on to question 10a, how might you explain Judas's decision to betray Jesus despite witnessing Jesus's powerful public ministry? You know, Judas's betrayal of Jesus didn't happen in a flash. It happened gradually. And um, it, it happened because uh, he allowed Satan gradually to take foothold of his heart. 
We find in Matthew that Judas had already made up his mind to betray Jesus even before uh, they got to this place at the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 15 says, uh, he went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. So he already got even paid for this um, before they even came to, for this supper at, in the evening. Judas took many small steps away from Jesus in his heart a long time ago. And as I mentioned in previous talks, we also can gradually drift away and not think anything about the small you know, drifting and drifting away as our affections draw us back to the things, the carnality of the world, away from the relationship with Jesus. You know, drifting, if you think about it in terms of a small sailboat, it's slow. You know, it wobbles. Sometimes it looks like you're moving toward Jesus when actually you're wavering back and forth, farther and farther, by little small movements away, by very small wobbles away from Jesus to the world. So I ask you this, how are you seeing your life drift and wobble over to the world and the world's ways? The old appetites you had, the desires of the flesh, how do you know that you're not drifting? That takes us to our second principle. Principle two is rejecting God's glorious love jeopardizes our faith and leads us to darkness. All the symptoms of living in darkness is very clear. When you're in the dark, you do things you normally would not do in the light. You know, these are all the shameful things that we do in the dark, in the secret. All the base and carnal things that we'd be ashamed of. If uh, We'd be ashamed if someone else knew about it. We'd be ashamed. People are generally lost in the dark too. They don't know where they're headed. They don't know the way out. They don't know where to go, where to be. They're just happy in their corner with the thing that they uh, held up so much of the space in their heart. They don't know where they're headed. So they live by the Epicurean principle that the Greeks believed in. You know, the Epicurean said, life is short, live it up. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, by today's words, they'd say, hey, we're not going to live forever. Might as well live it up and live fully to enjoy myself. And then they were ironically the other, at the other end of that spectrum, people in ancient Greek who saw how detrimental and harmful that gluttonous life can be, that guiding principle could be. So that, those Greeks, uh, who called themselves the Stoics, emphasized the importance of living a constrained life with definite boundaries and limitations. And that is, it also kind of uh, was a trap, too. But the life of Jesus calls us to abundant life in the freedom of the Lord and the spirit of his love. You know, this is the basis for our democracy on this belief that people had an internal moral compass in their accountability before God, that they had self-control, and they knew how to put together their own uh, personal boundaries and and restraints. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, But whenever, uh, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, or there is liberty. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image with intensifying glory. Glory upon glory is what that means, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So living in the Spirit intensifies God's glory, intensifies our ability to receive and to acknowledge and to understand the, the majesty and of his nature and his attributes. And the more you get to know God, the more it contributes to the liberation and exhilaration that you experience in the freedom that we have in God. So this is always a choice. You know, it's always a choice between his way or my way. There's a big song called My Way. Uh, there's always a tug of war of wanting to live life the way I think is right to live and desire to live or the life we know we are being called to live by the Lord who knows why we've been created and what we've been created for, because he's God. 
such it is with our lives. There will be many opportunities opening in either direction, and we don't even realize how one decision creates a momentum and a path-dependent direction toward other detrimental decisions. So, like Judas, one decision led to another decision, another bad decision, another bad decision, before it became a series of, 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 of data points that led to bad ideas and bad decisions. Life is a culmination of a series of small, innocuous decisions that have compounding effects in the end. The scripture says, Sin is crouching at the door, seeking to devour you. And the Lord says that He is praying for us and interceding for us. So let us intercede and be there for one another, encouraging each other to every good work. What guidance do you receive from these scriptures? I am responding to here, uh, question 13b. This important aspect of Jesus wanting to preserve us. He doesn't want to leave us to the lions. And a big part of this is being connected to the Lord in prayer, always seeking Him, and then connected to the community of the church, wherever you are, dedicating yourselves in support and love for each other in your church community. So my final question to you is, what does your faith community look like? How do you see love being practiced in your church community? And how can you raise that to a higher level than what you see there being practiced? How can that be practiced at a higher level in the ministries that uh, the church is involved in and the works of love that your church is seeking to collaborate together around? How can you be a leader in the conspiracy of love and service in your church and neighborhood? What might that look like in your family, in your friendships? Let's pray. Father, thank you for demonstrating everything that we need to do by your profound works of love, your, your actions of grace poured out upon us. We were confused at first because it was so otherworldly, and yet you showed us the Father's heart. You are the Father's heart, full of grace and truth, and we worship you and thank you for the perfect example that you left to us and the way that you will also lead us into when it's so hard for us to know how to do it on our own. So we rely entirely on you, our Lord and our Master so that your name is always lifted up and praised by our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Teach me to love.